let's go. Um, so I need, a, I need a very, like, um, I need a, a short, a short volunteer. I need a short volunteer. Can I get a short volunteer? I don't know, like, five. Okay, come on up. Come on up. Whoever, whoever you guys are pointing to. Perfect, perfect. Come on up. Come on up. Can you, uh, can you tell everyone your name? Emily. This is Emily. Can you, uh, you guys all say hi, Emily? Hi, Emily. All right. Now I need, like, I need like, like six dudes, okay? Like strong dudes, okay? So you two for sure. You two for sure. Why don't you two? Come on, you two guys. Yeah, come on up. One more. One more. Okay. All right. All right. So, um... So here's, here's what's going to happen. Um, I, I did spend, uh, before we planted Matthias in 2005, I did spend seven years in youth ministry, mostly because I enjoy death-defying uh, activities. And, um, and so, and so I, know, I, know that, I know that you've heard of the, the trust fall. You've heard of the trust fall, right? And so, but my guess is you haven't heard of the, the trust chuck. Have you heard of the trust chuck? Okay. So let, let, let me explain it to you. If you can just turn around here, okay? Just like that. That'd be perfect. Okay, so you guys are going to need to stand kind of across from each other. Yeah, there we go. If you, and you guys are going to need to, like, cross arms or something. Okay, some of you has, have bigger buys than others. Okay. All right. Perfect. Okay. So the, the trust chuck, and this is going to be perfect for you. Um, and there's a high potential. We have good insurance, so it's all good. The, the, the trust chuck is you're going to begin with the trust fall, but then they're going to chuck you back at me. Okay? So it's... It, I think it'll work out. You know what I'm saying? But really now, hold on. It's, it's okay. It's okay. Just wait a second. Just wait a second. Just wait. We, we can figure this out. We can figure this out. I got, I got something here that I think will help us out a lot. Okay? So, um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and we'll go here. Let's scoot over to the left so that there's a high chance of her hitting her head. Okay. So there you go. If you can just climb on that ladder right there. That'd be awesome. Yeah, this would be great. Just keep going. Yeah, just go hop. Yeah, keep going. There you go. No, I think you got more. There we go. Right there. All right. Uh, now, I think you're good on the head, okay? So here, here, have you ever done this before? Okay. Okay, so here's what's going to happen. You need to be careful because I think, okay, they're scooting back, all right? So... I'm gonna, I'm gonna count to three, and you're just, you're just gonna let it happen, okay? All right, and it's gonna be awesome, all right? Like, this is your moment right now, okay? You guys, are you guys ready? Okay, all right, here we go. Just let, just let it happen. Yeah, I, yeah, this is gonna happen. Yeah, we're doing it. She's asking me if I really, she's asking me if I really want her to do it. Yes, it's gonna happen. Here we go, you ready? One, don't, don't turn around, just look at me, okay? Just reach out your hands like t- Titanic, okay? Just let it go, there we go. One, two, three. Just go. Just lay back. There we go. All right. Nice. Nice. Give it up for Emily and my friends here. Well done. Well done. <laughs> um, seriously, though, like later, you should try the, 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 the trust chuck. Um, it's pretty awesome. So I was thinking about, like, these weird ways that we trust people, put a lot of trust in other people. And I, I want to phrase it to you in a question 
that I hope uh, will get your mind uh, stirring. What times in your life have you had to put a ton of trust in someone else? Um, I want to propose to you every time you get in a car. Like, think about how crazy the situation actually is. We put ourselves in a vehicle, at times driving 65 miles an hour down a two-lane highway, okay, while texting, okay, even though Oprah said not to, hoping, hoping that somehow the person on the other side of the road isn't doing the same thing we are. I mean, it's crazy. Like, I, sometimes I'll just be on a, on a road trip as each car passes. Like, I'm just thinking, oh, like, that could have been my life right there. Uh, listen, just this past weekend, uh, we had a, a new mom and her brand new child in a, in a Ford Focus in a car driving down the interstate, and a semi just, just like ran into her in her lane, like crushed the car, you got a brand new newborn, everyone's fine, but think about it, every single time you, you just get in the car, okay, you're trusting so many other people. Uh, some of you here are married, others of you are hoping to one day be and every single, like when I was like standing up, marrying my wife, actually the guy was on the other side. As I was, as I was standing up holding hands with my wife, Heidi, we had dated six years. She was my high school sweetheart, okay? So I'm, I'm super excited about this moment. She's unbelievably hot. We're, you know, holding hands. And it's crazy, right? Because like in that moment, I'm saying, like, I, I'm, I trust you. I trust that we're going to share in these these vows together, I, I, I trust that, that even though we're going to fail at some of these things, that, that we're going to forgive and that grace will win. It's crazy. But the crazier thing is how our trust of others impacts a question number two, which is this. What times in your life have you put a ton of trust in God? Uh, let me phrase it to you this way. I, I think that because of how some of you have been burned, how some of you have been betrayed, uh, how some of you have encountered relationships that have turned their back on you, how some of you have gone through uh, parents who got divorced, how some of you have gone through bad breakups, through all of these um, difficult times of trust, we then take that and we place it on the Lord. Because they betrayed me, you will too. Because they gossiped about me, you probably will as well. Because this, there's no way that this brokenness could be fixed. There's no way that this brokenness can be fixed either. Uh, I want to propose to you that the majority of our understanding of trust, I believe, has been based on interpersonal relationship. And, and I'm not saying I don't get it because I have my own battles and struggles there within. But what if, what if we could take a journey together that could teach us a new way. Uh, so if you're just joining us, uh, here's what we do at Matthias. We go verse by verse through the Bible. Uh, what you're not going to get here is self-help. What you're not going to get here is pull up your bootstraps and muster up some willpower and hope for the best. What you're going to get here week in and week out is the gospel and the person of Christ. That's it. Uh, we're going to talk about Jesus tonight. Next week when you come back, okay, no surprise, we're going to talk about Jesus again, okay? So what if, what if? We could take a journey through a brand new book of the Bible. We just ended a year in 1 Corinthians where you and I could learn about trust and faith in ways that we never have encountered. And what if we could do it 
through this crazy, awesome next slide book of, that's right, Joshua. Now, I know some of you guys grew up in Sunday school. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Come on, Jericho. I'm off to Jericho. Feel it? Come on, right? Like, listen, I, I grew up in the church. I, I, that song rocked me, right? Like, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Yeah, not so much now that I've seen that, right? Like, actually, when you read the story, yeah, Joshua's there. And so are, in all estimations, 1.5 to 2.5 million Jews around, okay? So, like, the whole song and the premise of the song and thinking that somehow that's like Joshua's claim to fame, uh, we're going to learn something uh, totally different tonight. So I'm going to pray over the journey. It's probably going to take us 8, 9, 10 months, who knows, 10 years. We're just going to get into this and see. Tonight's only five verses, so we're not getting off to a hot start, okay? So let's, let's pray over this whole series and journey. Then we're going to learn about trust and faith together. Come on, Father, come now, please, and teach us. We want to grow. We want to trust you more. Uh, we confess our lack thereof. We confess, God, our, our, dis- our distracted mind and heart has distanced us from you at times. And I'm just praying that you'll use um, your scripture It's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, to hone and grow our hearts. We love you in your great name. Amen. So open your Bibles or turn in your devices to Joshua chapter 1. Like I said, all of uh, five verses tonight, uh, but I hope and pray that for you they will be five verses that will be unbelievably impactful. Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. When you're there, say I'm there. Awesome. Awesome. The six of us are going to go for it. Here we go, verse one. (laughs) After the death of Moses, which is a weird way to start a book. It's going to be a long night, right? Like, after the death of Moses? Have you ever started a letter that way? Like, you know, have you ever started a text? Well, after the death of so-and-so, and and you just like went into something? This seems and feels odd, right? After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, not the son of Anun, but the son of Nun, who was Moses' assistant. Now, there's a whole lot to work with here in in, uh, verse 1. In fact, we're going to be here the majority of the evening. But I want to begin with this man named uh, Moses. If we're going to know and understand and learn about Joshua, then we must know and understand Moses. Interesting to note, two years ago, we went through the book of Exodus. It took us a whole long time. We ended uh, in December of 2014. So some of you were here for that journey, others not. So because we're a mixed crew tonight, I want to walk us through the resume of Moses. It'll get us all on the same page. Check this out. First on Moses' resume, number one, he was born a Jew, but adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. Interesting scenario. Let me explain. Pharaoh was trying to get rid of the male uh, Jews. He's trying to kill them. And so what happens, bless you, what happens is that he, he's born is Moses, and then his mother is, um, is trying to protect Moses. And so, many of you guys know the story. She puts him in a little nice basket and sends him down the river, okay? This is not a normal parenting technique, okay? But, but this was, this was uh, for his protection. What happens is this little basket of love carrying our dear friend Moses happens on the palace of Pharaoh. And guess who's out frolicking in the meadow? Yes, it's Pharaoh's daughter. She comes out, she sees a baby, as most girls do. She starts giggling and laughing and crying all at the same time. I don't know why babies do that to girls. They just do, okay? And she, and she takes interest in Moses. Well, what happens is, eventually, even using Moses' mom at times to nurse the child, 
she eventually adopts him. So, so though Moses was a Jew, he grows up in the home of Pharaoh. He grows up royalty. For some of you who have seen the cartoon movie, he grows up the prince of Egypt, which if you've seen the movie, then you'll understand all biblical doctrine. Let's keep going. Next on Moses' resume, uh, he sees eventually Hebrew oppression and then kills an Egyptian. So our dear friend Moses was a baby in a basket turned murderer. Here's how it happens. He starts to realize that he was, um, that he was maybe not Egyptian. He starts to have compassion for the Jews that, he, that he's seeing are being oppressed. Listen, the Jews were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. So the story goes, he walks out one day and sees, uh, sees one of his brothers, one of the Jews, being oppressed, being beaten in slavery. Scripture says he looks around, makes sure, make sure that no one is looking. He struck down the Egyptian, and then the Scripture records he hit him in the sand, Okay. And I'm thinking, like, that's not a good hiding spot for a body because sand kind of moves anyway, right? Like, so this baby in a basket turned murderer. Well, you can imagine what this is going to do to his standing with Pharaoh, which is why the next part of his resume is he gone, he flees Egypt, marries Zipporah, which is a really cool name, okay? Some of you should name your daughter that. And he becomes a shepherd. The baby in a basket turned murderer turned shepherd. This is a crazy resume. He's aging, getting old, has a really cool marital story. He meets Zipporah, the daughter of the priest of Midian. Really cool unity, but he's just a shepherd. Until all of a sudden something happens. Next slide. He's then called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, which is no big deal at all, right? I mean, they've only been in slavery for 400 years, and he's a baby in a basket. He used to be in Pharaoh's house, who now is going to be called to go back to Pharaoh. So through a burning bush... God says, Moses, um, I've heard the cries of my people, and it's time. And so he sends Moses, like, into the fury of his former home. And then through plagues and chaos and pleading and the softening and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, eventually the let my people go famous phrase is heard, and Pharaoh relents, and the Israelites roll on crazy story, and then eventually, quickly, to make this resume short, he dies before the promised land, and you're like, what? You have a whole intention of Moses leading the people out of slavery was to lead them to the promised land. Uh, the problem, the I problema, for those that are bilingual, the problem is that all of a sudden in his, in his disobedience, because of a staff and a rock and some water, he disobeys God, he doesn't trust God, even though he has a long resume of doing so. God eventually says, actually, uh, Moses, here's what's going to happen. You're not going to go in the promised land. I'm going to let you see it. You can look around. You can take a gander with your old eyes, okay? But you're not going to go in. So this is our man Moses, which if you understand these things, it's at least a foundational premise. But we need to move on uh, to another uh, understanding of Moses' journey. This is not the, the Google Maps, uh, you know, easiest route to the promised land, okay? Can you... Right? So they start here in the, in the left hand with the number one there. You can kind of see it. And their aiming point is the circle, is Canaan. It's just over the Jordan. So anyone can see. Like, you guys know Google Maps, like, sometimes gives you, like, two or three routes. Right? And no one's ever taking the third route. It's like, one route is 20 minutes, one route's 25, one is three hours and 42 minutes. Right? And that, that one's like walking with a horse and, a, you know, a carriage. You know, right? Like, no one's taking that route. 
But that's the precise route that God takes the Israelites. He takes them the long way around. Why? Because they're not on their timing and in their disobedience, the Lord's going to teach them about who he is, whether they will realize it or see it or not. And so Moses is a part of this crazy long journey, hearing the bickering of the people. Listen, they have just seen, they have just seen God part the seas. Are you kidding me? They're like walking around and they see flipper in the water, which probably isn't geographically correct or that's not even the right term. It's probably not ocean. Anyway, anyway, like they're walking through the sea. And then just on the other side, they're like, they're like complaining to the Lord that he hasn't provided food. I mean, this is the kind of people that Moses is leading. So he's a part of this whole journey. And so our man Moses sets a very, very strong foundation for our next character. So look again at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, which is a certain term of endearment, the Lord said to, what's the word there? To Joshua, the son of Nun. So what I want to do is I want to walk you through, before we begin this book, who Joshua is. And I'm telling you right now, my friends, there are so many interesting fun facts about this man. Number one, check this out. I think you'll enjoy this. He was born with the name Hosea. And many of you didn't know this. Moses then changes his name to Joshua in Numbers 13, 16. Interesting to note as well that the name Joshua has some significance. Is anyone here named Joshua or Josh? Okay. No one? Are you serious? Okay. Ah, person. Wait, two people. I see that hand. Okay. So you guys get it. The Hebrew name Joshua is the equivalent to, anyone know? Is the equivalent to Jesus. Crazy. So what, what Joshua represents, even in his strength, we'll see. Jesus is still the better Joshua, like Jesus was the better Abraham, like Jesus was the better Noah, like Jesus was the better Adam. All of these Old Testament characters are just to show how great Jesus is. But his name, okay, that of the Christ. Uh, secondly, I think you'll find interesting note of this. Listen, he spends the first 50 years of his life a slave. A slave. Scars. Whip lashes across his leg. He spends the next 40 years in the wilderness. And then we meet him at 90. That's right, 90, my friends. 90 years old. And right now, right now is a phenomenal opportunity to celebrate the seasoned folks of our body. Because I know right now you look around and you're like, mm, average age in this room is like 24. But listen, let me tell you, one of the most beautiful things about this body is in the first gathering, there are all kinds of gray. And we in this church celebrate the gray. In fact, the entire rhythm and model of Matthias is set up so that the age group that much of this demographic represents can consistently learn from and be discipled by those who have gone before you. Let me explain. On Sundays, we meet on Wednesday nights, you're here, you know that, so that on Sundays we can meet in homes. And what happens in homes on Sundays is we call them lot families. They're not small groups. They're not all of the college 22-year-old girls. They're not all the single guys. It's not the football team small group. We call them families. Why? Because I need to learn from 60-year-old men. And women in this room who are unmarried, you need to have moms that you can look to, wives that you can learn from, 
See parenting. See what it means to be a wife. You see, the danger that we've seen in our culture is you get a bunch of 21-year-old women together, 21-year-old men together, and they think that they can learn all life lessons together. Listen, what we've learned is there's beauty in family. And so listen, the consistent pattern, did you know how old Daniel was when he was dropped in the den? Anyone want to take a guess? You know know how old he was? That's right, 90. Abraham was cranking out kids at near this age, okay? I mean, it's crazy, right? I'm not saying that's going to happen to you. It would be awesome if it would, right? Awesome if it would. Got your cane going into labor, you know? But listen, (laughs) we celebrate the seasoned folks in here, and here's what happens. When a seasoned folk come to Matthias, okay, in season, I'm not going to give it an age range. You know if you're seasoned or not. We celebrate you because what happens here is the beauty of watching you lay down your preferences to dip in the Winnie Pooh honey pot of opportunity of discipleship that is here. So listen, some of you are walking in, you're like, oh, this is cool. There's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of young folks in here. Listen, don't celebrate there's a lot of young folks. Celebrate that there's a lot of gray hair. Celebrate that there's a lot of marriages that have gone before you. Why? So that you can be discipled and grow with those people. Because they've learned lessons that they can invest in you. And I'll guarantee you this, my friends. Some of the greatest victories we've seen are when a college student steps on their campus, they get instantly involved in a lot family, and they find their family away from home. They start building relationships. They have a place to do laundry. They have a home that they can go and find refuge in. It's beautiful, my friends. All centered around the premise that diversity is helpful. And so this very, very, very old man And Joshua gets called by God, which is one more proof that God calls those who don't seem to be ready, who don't seem the likely to be called, and every single one of us are an example of that. 90 years old, and God says, hey, now is the time to lead these 1.5 to 2.5 million people somewhere. Let's keep going in his resume. Good stuff coming. His first mention, this will uh, get some of you guys excited, is in Exodus 17 as a general. That's right, okay? He's Maximus, he's Braveheart, you name it. In the battle of the staff versus Amalek. So the very first time we see Joshua is in Exodus 17. Here's what happens. Moses says, hey, listen, Joshua, you're going to be the general. You're going to lead the troops. We're going to go against Amalek. And what happened is every time Moses' staff went high, they were winning. But every time his staff would would sink, they started to lose. And eventually, because Moses was an old dude as well, eventually... He had to get some help to keep his arm up. You guys know, like, if you've ever held something in the air for a while, even even you get tired. There's, like, people holding up his arm so that the staff stays in the air, and Joshua becomes the winning general. Uh, Also interesting to note, because he was the firstborn son of Nun, at the Passover, when the firstborn were killed in Egypt, it also makes him a survivor. So he's a survivor, firstborn son of none, who becomes a general, who next slide all of a sudden starts to take on some more responsibility. He becomes Moses' assistant. And some of you guys are thinking his like administrative assistant, right? Like Moses is like, hey, can you jot all that down, you know? And Moses is like, hey, go fetch me a water bottle. It's, it was a little bit different, okay? Joshua's Moses' assistant meant that Joshua... As Exodus uh, 24 points out, he got to go with him to the Mount of the Lord. So Joshua is being exposed to a ton, a ton of stuff. 
as he grows and matures. Moses' assistant, not a bad thing to have on your resume. Then next we see this happen, okay? He would stand at the tent of meeting and just keep watch, which, which first of all, some of you are like, tent of meeting? Like, I hate camping, right? Any of you guys hate camping like me? Okay, three of us, good. Um, really, that's it? Only me and you, brother. That's... I hate camping because there's no air conditioning, okay? I, right? Like, I hate camping because there's, there's bugs. I hate camping because... And so, so, so some of you guys look at the tent of meeting and you're like, that seems weird. I, I guess he enjoyed camping. Well, the tent of meeting is what held the presence of the Lord in much of the Old Testament. And what the scripture records is that Joshua would just, would just keep watch at the tent of meeting. Beautiful, beautiful stuff. But things progress in his resume. Check this out. Awesome stuff. He's a survivor. He's a general. And now that's right. He's James Bond. He, he becomes a spy. Listen to what happens. It's crazy. He's sent with 11 other spies out of the nation of Israel to check out the promised land. The mission was, check it out. See how big their people are. See what kind of artillery they have. See, see what kind of fortification they have. See if they got big forts. You know, check out their bicep and tricep, you know, configuration. I'll understand them. And so what happens is 10 of those spies come back and they're like, "Woo, this is not going to go well for us. And people are big. They got big forts. They got big guns, which is not true or biblically accurate. But like, right, they, they, they're, they're big. They were scared. They were fearful. But two people. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, I don't know what you guys are worried about. The Lord said like, that we're to do this, so let's go. And so the people start complaining. The people are like, we're not going. And here's what happens in response to that in Numbers 14. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly because they're hearing the complaints of the people. They're right on the precipice of the promised land. They're hearing uh, the complaints before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And look at this, verse 6. Here's our man Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, which you're going to see a pattern. Every time it seems like it says Joshua, it says son of Nun. I think it's just because it's fun to say. Keep going, okay? And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of uh, Jepena, who were among those who had spied on the land, look at this, tore their clothes. Now, this isn't some, like, relevant pattern for, you know, like, expressing yourself. This is, like, this is ancient mourning. This is ancient disgust. This is ancient angst. They tear their clothes And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. But even more importantly, verse 8. Here's what they say. Next slide. Check this out. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and will give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Which I have to pause because I had a a brand new believer one time ask me, why is that good? You know? Like, why would anyone want to go to a land that flows with milk and honey? That seems strange, you know? Like, because they're, they're picturing, right, like mountains of milk, you know, and like big bowls of Cheerios, and, right? Just, so to say, to say a land is flowing with milk and honey is to say that it's, it's bountiful, okay? It's bountiful. Okay, verse 9. Look at this. Here's what Joshua and Caleb say. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they, look at this, they are bred for us. That's intense. Their protection is removed from them, and you have to see this tonight if you're here. And the Lord is what, what does he say? 
is with us. I want you to take note of this. I want you to remember this throughout this entire journey of Joshua. Joshua, at the report of the spies, was telling the people that God is with us. It begins this pattern in his life. Okay? So, the people regress. All of the people in that generation die off because of their disobedience. And then eventually, next slide, we see this happen. After Moses is forbidden to enter the land, then eventually Joshua is called to lead them. And I want to show you a crazy text with crazy implications. Think about this. Moses led through all of that. God tells Moses, go up to the top of the Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. That pretty much covers the compass. And look at it with your eyes. For you shall not go over this Jordan. Can, like, can you imagine what God is telling Moses? Listen, man, you've had quite a long journey. Okay, you were in a basket, then you murdered someone. I called you out of being a shepherd. You led all these, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. You saw the seas part, and now you're going to stop short. You're going to just get to see the land. But then what he says in verse 28, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him. For he shall go over at the head of this, uh, of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. One of the things you're going to find out about us real quick, if you're brand new, is we absolutely love the command that Christ gave us in making disciples. Um, what we've confessed is about six years ago, we finally had to repent. It's the forgotten command in the scripture, go and make disciples. But when you ask most believers, how is that happening? They wouldn't be able to give you frame of reference. That was us as a church. We didn't need to learn discipleship. First, we needed to repent for a lack of it. And so what happened six years ago is this body started to embrace the call to make disciples. And so as I see this text, and as now we've seen generations of disciples being made, we've seen college students go from becoming a new Christian at 18 to now being 23 and 24, having discipled four to five generations worth of young women and men. Because what we believe here is that we're not to look down on anyone because they are young, but they're to set an example for the believers in speech and life and love and faith and impurity. My nine-year-old daughter just turned 10 this past week. She's a follower of Christ. We baptized her. She's confessed Christ. Well, she now is in the beginning of the season of discipleship. Why? Because it doesn't say go and make disciples only if you're asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Only if you have blonde hair and if you're, you know, more than 21 years old and if you can pay your own bills and if you don't get like, No. She's a follower of Christ, so right now she's in a season of readiness. So I see this crazy opportunity. You have the old man Moses, who God now says, you're not going to go to the promised land. You're actually going to invest, we could even say, disciple and strengthen and encourage Joshua to prepare him for leadership. And then the crazy thing is Moses is not even going to get to see the fruit of it. Because Moses will croak, pardon me, he'll, he'll die, okay, before he even sees Joshua lead the people, which is one of the beauties of discipleship. When you invite someone to come and follow you, as together you follow Christ, which is what biblical discipleship is, the focus isn't on you, it's on Jesus. The reality is the fruit in their life you may never ever see, but generations and generations and generations after, all of a sudden, at your funeral, you won't be acquaintances It'll be a bunch of people that you have discipled, that you've poured into, that you've invested your life into. Why? Because it's commanded and it's your joy to do so. So is it possible this is one of the, like, the initial discipling relationships Moses 
and our man Joshua. Cool stuff. The resume's not done, though. Look at this. He's charged, and then finally we see he's commissioned by Moses to lead. And I, I just, I want you to see this because this is crazy. And Joshua, the son of Nun, you see what I'm saying? Like every single time, okay? Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. Moses dies at 120. Our man Joshua is 90. Imagine Moses, and the scripture records at the end like Duke could barely see. And he's like, he's like laying his, his wrinkled, has murdered, has seen the, uh, the fiery uh, bush. He's heard the voice of God. He's been on the mountain of the Lord, and he lays his hand on Joshua. In this moment of commissioning, again, not a young lad, but an old man. And so the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. This, this is the character of Joshua. An old man called by God in what would seem to be an improbable time of his life to lead a crazy amount of people into a conquest that they cannot even imagine. And the question is, will he do it? Will he lead them? Will he go? We'll begin to see some of the framework of how this text lays out. Let's look at verse 2. Moses, God says to Joshua, and we don't have any indication this is a dream. So our only understanding then is that God is telling this to Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead. Again, this just seems like odd rhetoric, right? But it's true. Now, therefore, Arise. Now, I don't think this is a figure of speech. I'm, I'm like imagining, you know, like, I'm, like part of me is like imagining like, you know, Joshua down on one knee like a football pep talk or something, you know. And so the arise is very literal. Um, part of me uh, imagines, you know, Joshua in his old age, you know, sitting down for a rest. But I think all of it plays into this image of when God calls you, you are arising out of the ordinary or or out of the things that don't seem possible. And you are rising out of your past and you're arising out of your doubts. You're rising out of your distrust. Like all these things, he says, arise, Joshua, now is the time. Go over this Jordan you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Uh, bless you again. Now, I've traveled to uh, Israel, and I went to the Jordan. And it has uh, to it kind of a, an eerie, almost mystical kind of feel, because you can picture this scene. You can picture... God saying to Joshua, arise right now, and you can picture this old man looking across this. You can, you can picture him looking at it. Next slide. You can picture him like looking across the expanse. And, and you can hear the words of the Lord, go, arise, now is the time, with hundreds of thousands of people behind him. And I know some of you are looking at this like, what's, what's the big deal? Like, it looks like a... Like get in a canoe, right, and figure it out. You don't understand. The issue wasn't the Jordan River. 
The issue was what was on the other side of it. And I know we haven't studied the book yet, but let me go ahead, go ahead and give you a little bit of a spoiler. What's on the other side of the Jordan is chaos, is death, is destruction. What's on the other side of the Jordan is so much unknown. And so this old man looks out across the river and he's asked one question. Do you trust me? It's interesting, right? It's the same question that you're asked almost every minute of every day. For those of you that are in Christ, for those of you that submit to a good, holy, righteous God who extends his arm of fellowship to you through his son, then you're asked this question every single moment of every single day. Do you trust me? Tonight, some of you will be tempted with pornography and you're asked the question, do you trust me? Tonight, some of you ladies will be challenged again by the potential of an eating disorder and you'll be asked the question, do you trust me? Some of you are realizing that you're in an unhealthy dating relationship that has nothing to do with the glory of God and you'll be asked tonight, do you trust me? Some of you are wondering about your major. You're wondering, like, what, what's the next step for me? What school? Is this really the right school? Is this roommate really the right? And all of these questions are, do you trust me? And I fear what's happened uh, for us is that we think we're communicating yes, but in reality, our life displays no. We trust you when it's convenient. We trust you when it makes sense. We trust you when we can connect the dots, but when we can't, when there's too many unknowns, forget it. I'll step in again, God. And so I want to ask you a very poignant question, which I feel like for many of you has been waiting for a long, long, long time. Next slide. What Jordan does God want you to cross right now? There's so much unknown. In fact, you can already see to the other side of the river that there's going to be hurt there and struggle and strife. It's interesting to me, one of my favorite stories is when Jesus tells the disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake. And some of you guys know the story. The disciples get in the boat, go to the other side of the lake, and a storm, a squall comes on the Sea of Galilee, and what happens is they think they're going to die. Jesus is sleeping, which is awesome. They have to wake him up. And what Jesus asks them is, where is your faith? He asks them a question of location. But Jesus sends them out on the lake knowing that the storm was coming, and you don't think that he's going to do that for you? What's your Jordan right now? For some of you, it is the reality and the understanding that this relationship that you're in is headed nowhere fast and it's headed everywhere but Christ. For some of you, it's finally engaging that neighbor of yours. Like actually living for Christ and sharing the, the fact that he can save and that he's doing a work in you. Some of you have been prompted to, to share your faith before uh, at the lunch tables. Roommates, co-workers, friends, and, and all of a sudden you, you feel like you're silenced by something. You're muted by something. So for some of you, the, the crossing of the Jordan will just be a, God, I, I trust you. I don't even know what I'm going to say, but Lord, like, let's just go. I'm just going to cross the river, and I'm just going to believe that somehow you're going to do a work through this. 
You see what happens, my friends, when we cross, even knowing that there's, there's, so much, there's so many question marks on the other side, what we get to show and do to the world is that our God is actually God. Many of you guys were here several months ago when I shared the thing that is still stirring in my heart, that God is either a God for you or an idea. He's either the God that you submit to, that you worship, or he's just an idea that you grab when it's convenient. Like a little salt seasoning when you need him, a mantelpiece that you grab when you want to display him. But in most instances, you can live without him. I just want to make sure you understand, if God is an idea for you, then he's not your God. We get to show the world that he's God when we say, I don't know. Many of you guys know our story here. When we planted in 2005, I came and told my wife, hey, listen, we're going to plant Matthias. She's like, no, we're not. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think God's called us to. And she was like, who's going to come? I was like, I don't know. At least my mom, a couple pets, right? Like, I don't know, right? She's like, how are you going to get paid? Not sure, right? Like, what's the church going to look like? I don't know. We started with six people in our basement in 2000, uh, 2005. There were so many unknowns. But what we got to display in the whole journey is, I don't know, but God does. I can't, but he can. I'm unsure, but he is assured. I am faithless, but he is faithful. And so Joshua and you are standing on one side of the river, and the question is, do you trust me? Fully, not as an idea, but as the God of the universe, who, that's right, my Sunday school friends, has the whole world in his hand. Imagine this scene, and it only gets better. Look at verse 3 and 4. God tells Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I'm sure he was wearing pumas, I have given to you. Just as I have promised to Moses. Well, he didn't just promise it to Moses. Let me, let me tell you who he's promised it to. Father Abraham, that's right, had many sons, okay? Many sons had Father Abraham, amen, right? He promised it to Father Abraham in Genesis 12. He promised it to his son Isaac. He promised it to his son uh, Jacob. He has promised all through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, that he would provide a land, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so he proves yet one more time that he's a God who keeps promises. And this is the moment where I get to step back and just say, I know that people in your life and that you have not kept them. But just because they haven't and you haven't doesn't mean that he doesn't. But it's so easy for us to to negate that. My parents lied to me. This friend betrayed me. And so how can God perfectly, perfectly keep his promises? You, you see, when you step back now, how the logic doesn't work, we say that somehow our God is defined by how these people act. And if God is defined by how you and I act, then that's not a God that I want to serve, Right? It's not a God I want to submit to. It's not a God I want to worship. If my thoughts can somehow understand all of God's thoughts, it's not a God that I, that I want to worship. 
but he's not. His ways are greater and higher than ours. And so because of that, his promises, even though others haven't kept them, will always come true. From the wilderness, he says, and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be Joshua, your territory. Looking across the Jordan, he sees the expanse of this territory and God says, this is mine. And I know that some of you now feel like this is, you know, some sort of, you know, westward expansion story. But my friends, it's so much more because of verse 5. You ready for this? No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life just as I was with Moses. So I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Now remember when I said remember earlier? When Joshua came back as a spy and he told the people, God is with us. Now there's a track record of a man who doesn't just believe it, but that a man who now gets to hear from God that God will never leave them or forsake him. The Hebrew word is asar, which means he's not going to abandon him. He's not going to leave him. He's not going to orphan him. Here's what I know about you as my friends here, and this may weird you out, um, and it probably will some of you, but I say all the time here that I love you so much. Um, When I go to sleep tonight, I'll be praying for you, and when I wake up tomorrow morning, I'll be praying for you again. And earlier today, I shed tears of joy thinking about you. And so we really, and I really care so much for you. And I know for sure that there are many of you tonight that do not believe that God will never leave you or forsake you. And it's not that it just grieves me that that's true. It's that I know that some of you have been brought through the ringer that has caused you to lack trust. But Mark, but Mark, What do you mean he won't leave me or forsake me? You don't know the death that I've had to endure in my family. Mark, what do you mean he won't leave me or forsake me? Mark, Mark, you don't know my story. You don't know that I was sexually abused. The percentages would say that a ton of you in this room have been. Mark, what what do you mean he won't leave me or forsake me? When all it feels like in my life is one more punch in the gut. If I have to take one more punch from one more person or thing or, or, or activity going awry, like I'm, I'm done. I'm tired of it. Mark, what do you mean that, that he'll never leave me or forsake me? Mark, if you were in my head, you would hear the suicidal thoughts that I have almost on a daily basis. That I would be better off dead. What do you mean he'll never leave me or forsake me? One more night in my secret sin. And you're telling me that God's never going to leave me? Why doesn't he pull me out of it? I understand. I went through my parents' divorce at 18. I've lost many people close to me. 
including recently. I've seen, experienced a ton of hurt and pain. And I think what it comes down to is the question that I asked you earlier. Remember when I asked you this? I said, what times in your life have you put a ton of trust in God? What I've come to realize is this is just how I live. I think that trusting in God is about, is about a matter of time. Let me explain. Church planting, trust in God. Marriage, trust in God. Get in this relationship, trust in God. Like I, I, can, I can point to all of these major moments in my life. But what if trusting in God had way less to do with the major and way more to do with the minute by minute? What if trusting in God had way less to do about what school you're going to go to and way more to do about what kind of conversations are you going to have on the way home tonight? You see, what happens, my friends, is all of a sudden when tragedy hits or all of a sudden when the punch comes, when life gets hard, we have learned a pattern of distrust. And so now when all of a sudden we're hurting and reeling and grieving, we're now supposed to muster it up. That's why many of you in those moments say, God, you are not real. Because your entire life has been, I'm going to do my own thing, and when it's convenient, then I'll add a little seasoning. I'll go to the God well, I'll make sure I give a double high five when it's necessary, and raise my hands in worship, but then I'll go live like hell. Listen, that is not the call of Christ. I fear that many of you think that God has told you this. Last slide here. I think that many of you believe this. That somehow the God of the universe is whispering in your ear, I will leave you and I will forsake you just like he did, just like she did, just like they did. But tonight, can I tell you something else? The lies of the great deceiver are powerful But the proof and the faithfulness of God is that in spite of all of your record of sin, which is great and mine, he says, you can be my son and daughter. And he extends the hand of fellowship and says, listen, I sent my son. I know all that you've done. I know all that you've thought. I know all the heinous things you have done in secret. I know every one of those thoughts that you've had, every sexual thought, every lustful thought, every word that was blaspheming to me, I know it all, I've seen it all, God says. But guess what? Here's what I've done. In my faithfulness, in spite of your faithlessness, I've sent my son so that you could be united with me because of him. And yet we say and think that he is communicating, I will leave you or forsake you. He has shown just the opposite by extending the hand of salvation to you and I, my friends. And so God is saying tonight to each of us, to me, to you, do you trust me? Hundreds and hundreds of times between tonight and tomorrow morning, you'll answer that question. 
And so right now, um, I know that many of you are struggling in your heart to trust and believe for reasons of which are all across the board. And what I want to do right now is I want to pray that the hurt and the pain and the betrayal and the things that you've put on God that right now could be healed in the person of Christ, that the God of all comfort, the scripture said, would comfort you and that you would see the lies for what they are and hear the thunderous yet still small voice of God saying, I will never leave you. I'm with you. I'm never going to forsake you. I will not abandon you ever. They did, I won't. I love you even though all of these things have occurred. And then our lives, oh my goodness. We daily then just get to look over the Jordan, all of the unknown, and say, I don't know God, but you do. Let's stand together, come on. So what we believe here, Matthias, is that prayer is not an anecdote, but that prayer is a powerful tool for us to commune with God. And so because of that, I'm going to pray in power right now over those of you that are struggling so deeply with trust. Seriously, what if it could all change right now? What if every single one of you who came in here doubting could leave here saying, you know what? I'm sick and tired of the lies, winning. I believe it can happen, and so we're going to pray to be so. Are you guys with me? Come on. So, Father, right now, for those that find themselves distanced from you, for those, God, that, have, that find themselves uh, who have made you out to be an idea, for those that have blasphemed, for those that have turned their back, for those, uh, God, that have been trying to do it on their own effort, for those that are hurting. I pray right now, God, that the beauty of who you are as God would overwhelm them again. That the work of salvation that you've done, the offer of fellowship, the extension of your grace, that right now, maybe for the first time in years, they would be overwhelmed with joy and hope in spite of the affliction. God, would you right now just cover this whole room with belief and trust in you? Would you make us worshipers? Would you guide us to a trust of you? So God, we lay ourselves here again. And we're asking that in the plenty or the want and in the trial, the pain or the joy, that you would help us believe that you will never leave us. Help us believe that, God.